Sunday again. Here we are, another week in the books. Good morning to you, Ben. Good morning. How's it going? Oh, going pretty good. No complaints. Big weekend uh, at the Mary Browns Center Very with so. the, the Growlers uh, going into their third game now yep. today. But last night was a huge night. How was it? Kids Eat Smart Night was a blast, Excellent. I gotta say. Um, all the hockey, everything aside, you can even ignore all that. <laughs> the outcomes, it doesn't even matter. Kids Eat Smart Night was uh, an absolute blast at Mary Brown Center. Uh, great crowds out. Looking forward to seeing uh, just how much money Kids Eat Smart raises through the campaign for breakfast. And uh, $5 from Every ticket sale went towards the Kids Eat Smart campaign for breakfast. Every dollar is a breakfast for a child. So uh, looking forward to seeing the outcomes on that and uh, the impact that Kids Eat Smart Night is going to have on breakfast clubs right around the province. But not done at Mary Brown Center, as you mentioned. Uh, Another one coming up against the Kalamazoo Wings this afternoon, 2 p.m. And looking forward to that. The the Sunday rubber match is always one of the best ones. Yeah, a lot of fun. A lot of uh, hoopla going on down at Mary Brown Center. Uh, It was a big week news-wise. My goodness, we saw the passing of the 18th Prime Minister of Canada. That's Brian Mulroney passing away at the age of 84. We had a whole lot of reaction to that. But there was other news as well. Yeah, we'll bring you some of that reaction a little later on the best of your VOCM mornings. But yeah, you're right. There was a lot going on. Uh, Restaurants Canada, still lots of talk around alcohol excise tax. Uh, Tech Talk Tuesday, of course. This one in Tech Talk Tuesday that jumped out to me this week was the whole thing about putting wet iPhones in rice. (laughs) And Apple's now saying not to do that. Um, I don't know. Yeah, fuzzy. Kevin sort well not not to give it away, but spoiler alert, Kevin said, "Meh, you know, that might just be Apple saying that to make more money." <laughs> we we have seen them do that kind of thing in the past with the uh, here's an update to your phone. Here's a little bug planted inside yeah. of it and it's actually going to make your phone work a little bit a little bit less than <laughs> what it might slower. have before that update. But <laughs> yeah, we we do have lots to get through, so we should get right to it. Grab yourself a cup of coffee. I mean, maybe you're a tea drinker that is totally accepted here on The Best Of. <laughs> Piece of toast. <laughs> maybe you want a scone or a biscuit. Bowl of cereal. Join <laughs> us right here on The Best of Your VOCM Morning. Good Sunday morning and welcome to the best of your VOCM mornings. I'm Ben Murphy. And I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. Well, let's start here. Fifteen months ago, Ukrainian natives Alex Bazer and his partner Alex Chermashensev sought refuge in Canada, aspiring to build a secure life together. Your VOCM mornings first introduced you to the two Alexes about six months ago, following their return from Labrador. Bazer had encountered a medical crisis while in pursuit for stable employment in Labrador, an event that precipitated their move back to the St. John's area. However, resettling on the island didn't bring much relief that they had been hoping for. Instead, they faced even greater challenges. I sat down with both Alex's earlier this week to learn more about their experiences as Russian-speaking Ukrainians and to talk about the ongoing hurdles they face in establishing themselves. I take the first job offer, even like it's not the dream job, it's not what I've been most probably looking or hoping. And luckily for me, it, assumingly, it was full-time job, you know, that in order to settle down here, we have some procedures to follow up with immigration office. Unfortunately, my contract is not eligible for further process. So, like, we realize that we cannot move forward without my contract. 
and we were really struggling to find a job for Alex. Alex just secured his employment in December. So it took him a long time. He's still on probational period. So we literally expecting they will kick him out. And the reason is, first of all, he was promised full-time job. He does not get 40 hours per week. And we already did have an issue, like why you're supposed to have... We have applied for provincial nominee program. Assumingly, it should take 25 days to get your response, negative or positive. We applied on 20th of December. And we know we are a problematic couple, you know, because we have very specific case. And I, I can speak out now because we are both dual nationality. We both have Ukrainian and Russian citizenship. So we get mistreated from our people. As you know, we are really... Because you're Russian speaking. Yes. yes. We are isolated. We don't stay in touch with our people because, first of all, they don't expect us as a gay couple. And second, they don't expect because we are Russian speaking. Now, our government has second reading of law and it means that we won't get any support from Ukrainian embassy. We cannot prolong our passports. We cannot get policy record, we cannot get any diploma, duplicates nothing, and that's the documents required for PR. Right now, are you both without passports? We have only Russian passports, that's the problem. And in fact, we arrived to Canada with no passports at all, because my passport was lost with immigration in Netherlands. And I just got it a couple of months ago. So I literally don't have any documents. And now we cannot get any documents from Ukraine. As And, you know, first of all, because we were born in Ukrainian part. So, like, due to our born, we are legal Ukrainian citizenship, both. But Alexis region is fully controlled by Russians for 10 years so literally not, has nothing to do with and nothing to go back. I was trying to evaluate my, you know, why my master's, I'm a teacher. And I was eager to become or early child educator or child news worker. I love kids. I'm really getting along with them. It took me four months to fight with my university in Ukraine. I did not make it. They did not give me uh, the documents I needed. It means that here in Canada, I cannot prove my education. I have two masters and I have a few diplomas like hospitality, business administration diplomas. I have very rich educational background, but I can't prove anything here. So I have to take the minimum paid job just to survive. We, ha- we have left like 16 months of our work permit. And after that, we have to leave the country. For us, there is no way going back to any of the countries. And there is no way for us to settle down here. I don't know. We are really thinking like to move to another province, but we don't have that much savings. I don't know like how to find job housing in other province, but unfortunately here we feel... I have the only question, you know, to provincial government. Why should you bring newcomers if this province does not give any support? I don't feel supported. My partner does not feel supported. And moreover, I will tell you, as a LGBTQ plus couple, we don't get any support. 
there are basically one LGBT organization. They don't deal with any legal stuff. They don't give like legal advices or immigration pass. And yes, we don't have this. We just don't have. When I um, was my interview with my employee, uh, I said to him, "It's not about money. It's about PR. Give me a chance, take my PR." But now I have at least thirty, thirty-one hours per week. And it's not enough. No, and it's not full. You know, it's not full time. What could the provincial government do? to alleviate some of the struggle that you're seeing right now. We are not asking for any excuses. We're just asking for fair working environment. We do our job, we know our job. If it comes to an issue and government knows about it, they should support it. Do you know that my previous employer still is a designated Atlantic immigration program on provincial government site? And my question is, we were evicted by that employer. So how can you trust an employer who kicks out people on the street? We have a resolution of tenancy in landlord board. It's not my word. I can show you that it was stated it was illegally. She could not evict us. And we ask for help. So we're in trouble. And, you know, I have a screenshot of a reply as well. They said, oh, we are so sorry we experienced it. We can connect you with INC employment services to get you a new job. It's not what I'm asking for. And you know what? We did have consultation with employment services. We are here 15 months. We never got any proposal of job from them. Is it support we are looking for? Yes, we are ready to work. We are hardworking people. At the moment, we are not sure if Alex will pass his probational period or if we will qualify even for provincial nominee program. If we don't, it means for us, it's our last stop. We have no future here. You know, my idea about Canada was like their human rights are really at high level. But what I'm, I realize now, it's very selective. It's not for everyone. And being a newcomer, being LGBTQ. Alex, if you had your time back, would you both still have chosen Newfoundland and Labrador 15 months ago? We will tell you the truth. No, we would not. Because it's not about, you know, some struggle or some difficulties. We realize that we cannot settle down here. We tried so many times to deliver the message that we are very specific case you know that we did have consultation with lawyer and she said like literally you are the first one the first case like that i see but it does not make any easier for us we cannot apply as a refugee why such excuse was made for ukrainian but excuse in a bad way because you know due to international convention if there is state of war in your country you can ask for asylum in any country you're in. We don't qualify for that. I mean, we can apply, but our case will be 100% rejected. And you know what else? My region, it's a hell. Each day they cut thousands of missiles. My family, they 
it's a miracle they survived because half of the city is controlled by Ukrainians. Left bank of the river and my city controlled by Russians. Each day they shoot each other. His region is fully controlled by Russians. Ten years. So we have no home. We have no, nowhere to go. Where is your home? My home is Kherson. Most probably you've heard about Hydro Dam was bombed. That's my city. That's when the city was flooded. Then people were dying there. And Alex, where's your home? My home is nearby Lugansk. It's called Krasnodon. Yes, and my home was destroyed. It's bomb. Then we have a massive attack almost 10 years ago. What's your next move? I don't know. You know, like, first, I need a bit mentally to recover because I'm not myself. Honestly, it's the first time I, I don't want to go outside. I don't want to see people. I'm really, like, you know, because it's more than I can stand. And I need some time. I don't know. We still make our research, like, where to go, what can we afford, where we can get some support. I'm trying to contact some LGBT organizations for support because it's the only chance for us. Like, there is no one here, unfortunately. I'm pretty sure no one will come and tell you, oh, we we are discriminated and get exploited at work because they're scared. I'm not scared. You know, I did not come to Canada to be scared. I came to Canada to be myself, to be proud and to be part of Canadian society. And I can tell you, I'm not bad one for Canadian people. I'm a very good one. So I don't feel ashamed about that. After we tried so much, we just realized it's dead end. I mean, in this province, it's dead end for us. And that is my conversation with Ukrainian natives Alex Bazer and his partner Alex Chermoshensov. And you heard uh, Bazer mention that his partner was in a 90-day probational period with his place of employment. They were concerned that he would be let go before he reached that three-month period. And uh, I'm I'm regretful to report this, but uh, Chermoshensov was let go from his place of employment. So they are still facing challenges. Over to you, Ben. Rising interest rates, escalating food prices, and inflation are impacting just about everyone. Every business feeling the strain with restaurants and bars especially facing tough challenges with more set to come. Restaurants Canada is calling on the federal government to reconsider plans to implement a 4.7% increase to the alcohol excise tax and the maintenance of a 2% cap on the alcohol excise tax escalator. Jordy Morgan is Vice President Atlantic with Restaurants Canada. I sat down with him for a conversation about that, an alcohol discounting system, and privatization. What might this mean for bars and restaurants? Well, it's going to mean more cost. You know, we were, we were talking about this yesterday, and if you think that if this costs, uh, you know, a million dollars worth of revenue, this is another $50,000 of cost that's added to the, um, uh, to the ledger for a business that's selling alcohol. It's, it's not just that it's going to cost more. You think, okay, how much do they have to sell to make up for that? And that's, that's a difficult proposition. So the 4.6, 4.7% is really not what this excise tax was designed under. We were looking at sub 2% inflation rates. And I honestly feel that it, it's pretty distasteful for the government to reap a windfall of tax dollars 
off of an industry that is suffering at a time when they're just adding more cost for uh, not only just the, the, the operators of the businesses, but also for consumers. So we're hopeful that the finance minister will reevaluate what they're doing here, look at the original intent of the tax as it was, and put a cap on it like they did last year. So sticking with alcohol, how would an alcohol discounting system work? Well, in other provinces, they have it. Here in uh, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, I, I was talking to some folks here. I think there's around a 5% discount, right? So the, the idea of a, a, a discounting process is to allow operators to actually look at more of a kind of a wholesale opportunity there so that they rather than simply paying retail rates and then you know having to double those costs in order to make any money on it in a in a restaurant uh, that you would look at a, a discounting process so that there would be a level of profitability on a product that is you know so heavily taxed when you look at the amount of tax it's on a bottle of alcohol of any kind I think what was that? somebody was telling me is you know you got beer is four percent water and ninety six percent tax, but it, but it's um, it, it, it's a very heavily taxed product, obviously. So the government is making revenue on it. So I think there's an ability for governments to look at it and say, okay, what can we do to support our um, our entertainment and our restaurant sector, and what can we do to help consumers as well in this end? And say that you know, there's always social considerations around alcohol, so it's one of it's one of those debates. But at the same time, there's room for the government to move on this. So I'm hoping we can have a discussion around this and say, let's look at what other provinces are doing. Nova Scotia's got a 10% discount. Alberta sells at absolute absolute wholesale rates. You know, so that that. that they can't get it any lower than that without taking a loss. So I think other provinces have models that are worth examining. And uh, I think this is the case for all provinces in Atlantic Canada, that it's also time that we start looking at, okay, how do we modernize the beverage alcohol legislative framework and the regulations around it? Has this helped restaurants and bars? Oh, sure. I mean, the costs are lower, right? Um, yeah, this is... Uh, <laughs> I can't tell you how long I've been talking about privatizing uh, alcohol corporations with people. There, there are good reasons for it to be privatized, and there are good reasons for it to remain, you know, under government control. I think, you know, as time goes on, we have to look and say, okay, what are the liquor? What is the Liquor Control Act designed to do? What are we looking at in the future as uh, social changes, you know, take place? When most of the Liquor Control Acts were brought in, it was pre-prohibition time. And there was a very different attitude towards liquor. There, I mean, there is still a place in the Liquor Control Act where you can say that pharmacists can get beverage alcohol, basically, so that they can, so that they can uh, prescribe this stuff to patients, right? I don't know if anybody's getting a shot of whiskey and biting on a bullet anymore, but, uh, you know. So there there are a lot of sort of antiquated regulations that are there that are that are worth um having a look at most of the and i don't mean to say that you know we haven't seen modernization going on because over time you always see this the acts being amended to make changes to reflect current situations but i'll give the example of what happened in new brunswick or pardon me in nova scotia with the motor vehicle act is they looked at the Motor Vehicle Act that was designed when horses and buggies were sharing the roads with uh, automobiles for the first time. And they said, you know, when we're getting into an era of self-driving cars, it's, it's quite a different thing. I mean, they, we didn't have uh, Google Maps when the Motor Vehicle Act was first uh, devised. So 
the, the point behind that is that is it time to look at the regulatory framework, which is the act, and then say maybe we should have something that's a little more streamlined, a little more modernized, reflecting the priorities of the community and, you know, and Newfoundland and Labrador today or the other Atlantic provinces, and then say, let's revise the regulations to hang them off a nice, clean, fresh act that has, I think, a little bit uh, better focus. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to throw the act out tomorrow and we're all sitting in chaos for a year. What they've done in Nova Scotia with the Motor Vehicle Act is they, so they, they, they got rid of the act, they repealed the act, and they said, okay, what we're going to do is the Motor Vehicle Act is still in place until we are able to complete the regulatory process, right? So, that, and that can take time, and that can, you know, go through public consultation. Everybody's afraid if you open up an act, you know, that the sky is going to fall, and everybody, there'll be people marching in the streets with, you know, pitchforks and torches. That's not what happens. It's, it's a consultation process where you look at how do we create a better legislative framework for the province. And, and I'm hopeful that they'll, they'll consider it here. It's a big ask at a time when there's a lot of conflicting priorities, but government should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. And, and one other important thing I just want to add here is I think the government has to ensure that, you know, that the business community writ large, that the economic driver of the province is something that is valued and recognized. There's a lot, in Atlantic Canada, there are a lot of people that kind of look at business a bit askance, if you know what I mean, that, that, that there's not a lot of trust there for how business is going. But, you know, we're not talking about the railroad here. We're talking about your neighbors, the people who are running small businesses and that are just trying to make a living. And those are the folks that we want to ensure are supported in doing what they're doing. So I, I hope that the government will recognize that and, and, and try to encourage their growth and development. And that is Jordy Morgan, Vice President Atlantic with Restaurants Canada. Over to you, Jerry Lynn. Well, you know yourself, Ben. Each week we have our segment Tech Talk Tuesday, and we talk about a whole lot of different mm-hmm. issues. But one that stuck out in particular this past week <laughs> was the one we addressed the issue of water-damaged iPhones. Here's what local technologist Kevin Andrews had to say about it. Why is rice not recommended? Ben, who would have known? I mean, I, like like yourself and many others, have been doing this for years, I think, for me. And, and you know, it saved my devices, I think. But Absolutely. I, right? Apple has now come out and advised against using, you know, rice to dry out damaged iPhones. And they say it can cause more harm than good. And instead, they suggest gently wiping, wiping the device with a soft, lint-free cloth to remove any excess water. They also suggest avoid using heat sources like a hot hair dryer or compressed air, as that can damage the phone's internal components and and so they just say after wiping the device place it in a well ventilated area to air dry for at least five hours before attempting to really turn it on now i mean between you and me if my phone takes a dive into the toilet which let's be honest has happened already and and i'm left out uh, to sort of dry as apple suggests uh, i might just be inclined to sort of resort back to the old rice trick and cross my fingers and hope for the best yeah, I mean, I definitely can say that I feel like this rice trick has worked for me numerous times. Kevin, is this just them wanting us to buy more iPhones? It probably is. I mean, you know, their devices have, have a lot of complicated circuitry inside, so I can kind of see how something could get damaged. I would say if you put it in a bag of rice, just put it in gently. <laughs>
Good Sunday morning. Welcome back to the best of your VOCM mornings. I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. And I'm Ben Murphy. And this week, the St. John's Board of Trade welcomed its new chair and 2024 Board of Directors at a social and media event in St. John's. We welcomed Kevin Casey to your VOCM mornings. Kevin, the Board of Trade was established in 1970 to help business succeed and make St. John's a great place to live and make a living. What appeals to you about that mandate? Well, I think, uh, you know, I'm 56 years old. I probably got more of my career in the rearview mirror than it is ahead. But um, for me, this was personal. Um, the Board of Trade was extremely good to me when we built the idea factory uh we won a big award that probably uh positioned us as being legit i think before 2007 you could probably get fired for hiring the idea factory but uh, they recognized us they helped us grow and kind of believe in ourselves um so for me personally this was payback and i also realized along my journey with the board of trade the last five years that my mom back in 1989 was part of this and she's 88 years old now and she was in the room and uh, I didn't even know my mom was part of the board of trade because I probably wasn't paying attention as a young guy back then about what your parents do. But for me, I just felt, um, you know, as a 23 year entrepreneur, an accidental entrepreneur, it was uh, my time to give back. And, you know, I just want to, I had this mind for small business because I've always been in those shoes and this is my chance to get back and give to those 16,000 businesses. 90% of them are less than eight people. So I think people always got to be reminded when you think of business, these aren't the ones that are often showcased in the news. These are the people operating out of, you know, kitchen tables, not boardroom tables. And they're the people that running a business can be lonely. And part of the St. John's Board of Trade is to be that shoulder tap to make it less lonely. And that's what we're trying to do and be their collective voice on the issues that matter. And Kevin, you just called yourself an accidental entrepreneur, and I couldn't help but notice, but your bio says you graduated with a blistering 67% average from Memorial University with a Bachelor of Commerce in 92. And that struck that struck a chord with me, and you are here you are now, Chair of St. John's Board of Trade. What message does that send to others who start off as, you know, the quote-unquote so-called underachievers? Yeah, I mean, I think when I go back to the business school now, whether it's Kona, um, and I see people in those seats, you know, I was in the mushy middle, so I was that guy that scraped through at 65, wondered, should I even be in the business school? Why am I here? And they're the people that I try to connect with because it's not all about being book smart. It's about finding yourself. And uh, for me, they're the people I try to connect with. And when I look at small business and business people these days, I think sometimes, you know, these are the people at three o'clock in the morning are worried about things like payroll. How do I find talent? How do I keep people happy? Where do I find my next client? And part of the Board of Trade mission here is to actually be that shoulder tap to help them get through and untangle some of those issues. And they don't have time to network. So when people say to me the Board of Trade is a networking uh, circle, it's, it's way more than that. I mean, business is a contact sport. And there are 768 members that use it right are the people who say to us, I need to get in and see this company because they would be a great partner to help me grow, but I don't know them. And we just matchmake it and make it happen. 
And if there's issues in the province, like, you know, the taxi situation that we just went through, we're the ones at government and municipal level that are knocking on the doors about ride sharing and trying to make that happen, air access at the airport. So business people don't have time to do that. They're too busy in the ground doing what they need to be doing. And we need to be that voice for them and to help them accelerate it. So to the people for me who were 67, 65 average, you're absolutely going to be fine because you're going to find your path and you're going to find mentors like I did through the board of trade for many years and they're going to get you to the next level. So it doesn't need to be that lonely. We're speaking with Kevin Casey, the newest chair of the St. John's board of trade. And Kevin, what are your priorities for the role? Listen, I think we have done, you know, I've been part of the board for six years. It's more of the same, more of tackling the tough issues that we know affect business. I think an example of this, we're going to do the business boot camp in May where we're actually going to, you know, big time get experts to come in on real practical issues on how do I sell? How do I pay less taxes? How do I hire talent? These are like real issues that business owners struggle with. And we're going to bring people in. It's going to be a one day or two day session because people don't have a lot of time and they're going to pick through how to actually run their business forward. So our whole mission is how do we move business forward? And sometimes that's issues like ride sharing and air access. Sometimes it's about how do we just make it easier for the small business? And again, to remind everyone, there's 16,000 businesses, 80% of them are under 10 people. So that's who we're trying to help move along. And, uh, We just want to be there for the 768 members that are growing each day and make them create these positive collisions with each other. Kevin, you mentioned how your mom was at that event yesterday and was a former board member herself. How special was that for you both? Yeah, I kind of lost it, to be uh, quite honest with you. That was, you know, as I was telling the story about mom at, you know, 48 leaving the house as uh, a secretary and going out on her own. There was not a lot of females back in 1978 doing that. And, uh, you know, there was four, myself, my three siblings, we just thought mom was having an off day or something. And we didn't know she was actually really going to do it. And, you know, she retired at 70. And I think that's a little bit where I got my entrepreneurial spirit and having her there yesterday and telling that story and then looking in the front row and seeing her, it was, it, it definitely struck a chord with me, but it was special. And it was, I felt very lucky that, uh, you know, at 88, um, she was still there to experience that moment and for me to thank her. And that is Kevin Casey, the new chair of the St. John's Board of Trade. Jerry Lynn. Well, on the federal front, federal government has signaled plans to slash its yearly contributions for employment programs by over $16.5 million, affecting the province's budget for a variety of job-related initiatives. This financial support currently serves a wide array of purposes, including aiding employment for people with disabilities, fostering young job opportunities, assisting community service organizations, and even bolstering sectors like technology and green energy. Should these reductions be implemented, they will be felt nationwide, with the $16.5 million figure representing the anticipated shortfall for Newfoundland and Labrador alone. 
Minister Jerry Byrne joined us on your VOCM mornings to discuss the potential cuts. Well, first of all, what do you know about these pending cuts? Well, I have a duty to inform. These are federal decisions that are being taken, uh, but they're not yet taken. When we had a, a federal, provincial, territorial ministers of employment and labor market development meeting just recently with the federal minister of employment and social development Canada, Randy Boissonneau, uh, we held those meetings in Winnipeg. He gave formal notice to all provinces and territories, including Newfoundland and Labrador, that Canada was taking very seriously the option uh, to withdraw funding from the provinces and uh, implement their own programming. So I need to be very clear about this. What I know, you will know. And we don't know the whole details of what the federal government's plan is. It probably will not be revealed until the federal budget is read um, at a later date, at a future date, which has not yet been decided. But formal notice has been given to all provinces and territories, including Newfoundland and Labrador, that the federal government uh, is seriously contemplating removing funding from the labor market development agreements and the workforce development agreements, the labor market transfers, that Ottawa has been providing for well over 15 years to the provinces, including our province, uh, and uh, taking that money, and instead of gov- provincial governments allocating it under the, for their labor market needs, Ottawa is saying that we know best. Uh, Ottawa knows best, and they would like to allocate it to the uh, to organizations throughout the entire country. And that kind of sounds a little counterintuitive because I don't know exactly how Ottawa can know best what's going on in labor markets in Carbonier or Corner Brook, but apparently they think they can. So what do you think the immediate impact of the proposed $16.5 million funding cut is going to have on this province's employment programs? Well, listen, first off, we're trying to stop those cuts. Uh, we're at all provinces uh, are, are just working with the federal government to try to prevent this. But at the end of the day, it is their decision we service well over 7,000 people in our province with labor market services, uh, getting the access to training, uh, finding jobs, being able to support people who have uh, difficulties entering the labor market, people with uh, uh, both uh, intellectual and, and physical disability, but as well uh, people who... Um, People on the autism spectrum, for example, we provide services for over 7,000 people. We partner with over uh, dozens of organizations across the province to be able to do this. If there is a cut of over $16.5 million, um, that is going to be pretty significant and serious as to how those programs can be delivered. And so we don't, I can't be, unfortunately, I can't describe for you with any accuracy or precision what the impact may be because Ottawa has not said what their final decision will be. But there is, and I'll, and I'll say this because I, it, you, you got to bring the full story forward. There is 
somewhat of a silver lining in all of this, because or not a silver lining, but at least a, a there's some ray of hope, uh, because Ottawa said they're going to take that money and they're going to potentially reinvest it back in their own programming. So while that may sound great, here's the problem. Organizations will now have to develop relationships, brand new relationships with Ottawa uh, to be able to make up for that lack fund, that, that cut in funding. They'll have to make uh, develop relationships, uh, put in applications to brand new programs based out of Ottawa. And the way Ottawa has done this in recent years is instead of using provincial governments to be able to, to deliver these core programs, these essential programs, they've relied on not-for-profit organizations, national not-for-profit organizations, many of them based in Toronto and Montreal and some based in Halifax. So Newfoundland and Labrador-based organizations, to be able to get back that money that the federal cut from the province, may have to apply to a not-for-profit organization in Toronto to be able to, uh, to to get that money back. And I don't think that's going to work out all that well, to be honest with you. And so we'd really like to see this money stay where it's been productive, where it's provided great value to the people of our province, keep those relationships strong, and uh, don't fix something that's not broke. So that's where we are, Jerry Lynn. Yeah, how does the province plan to engage the federal government to address the concerns that you have about all this? Well, listen, this has been a process. Um, that's exactly, it, it dominated the last uh, minister's meeting with the federal government. All provinces are just absolutely incensed about this. They're, uh, they're very, very angry. They want answers. Ottawa's not giving final answers. And so this is this conversation that you and I are having is part of my duty to inform that while a decision has not yet been taken, one is pending. We've asked organizations from our province to reach out directly to Newfoundland and Labrador's federal members of parliament and remembering that for the first time in a very long time, our province has two federal cabinet ministers sitting at the table of the Trudeau administration, now's a really great time for those federal MPs to represent our province and its best interests by making sure that our province and the people of our province don't have to apply to some not-for-profit organization based out of Toronto to get labor market assistance here at home. And that is Minister Jerry Byrne. He joined us earlier this week on your VOCM Mornings. Ben. Well, travel can be stressful at the best of times. Throw in the inevitable delays, cancellations, and lost luggage, and it can be daunting. The Canadian Automobile Association has just released a straightforward guide aimed at making sense of the complex air travel regulations and offering support during travel mishaps. Julia Kent is Director of Social Responsibility and Advocacy with the CAA Atlantic. She joined us on Wednesday morning. What prompted the CAA to create the Air Passenger Help Guide? Well, the existing uh, air passenger uh, protection regulations have been in uh, effect since 2019, largely in part due to our lobbying. Um, but 
they really are complicated and long. So there's 60 pages. And the odds of a traveler or a regular consumer, you know, reading through that and figuring out what they're owed and how to go about getting it are slim to none. And a lot of the Canadians have been saying, actually, uh, you know, 80% are saying they need more transparency from airlines and the government on, you know, what the rules are and when they're being treated fairly and when they're not. So that really prompted us to say, you know what, we need to distill this 60 pages down and create an easy-to-use guide so in five clicks or less, you can find out what, if anything, is owed to you in the event of an issue with an airline. What are the most common flight disruptions addressed by the guide? Well, um, it depends. So uh, cancelled or delayed flights is what we hear most common. Um, A flight stuck on the tarmac, uh, being denied boarding, um, and issues with baggage. So those are the uh, the most common uh, things. Um, or the seating of a child uh, under 14 with their parents. That also is something that we hear. But the it's key to note that the guide does not cover some of the less common issues like unaccompanied minors, um, accessible travel, if you, if you have an accessibility requirement when you're traveling, um, and the transportation of large items like musical instruments. Um, so for these issues, the travelers are supposed to go to the uh, Canadian Transportation Agency website Um, but those are much less common than the ones that I listed. Julia, why is there a need for a plain language guide despite these existing federal rules? Well, it's, you know, we look often to Europe who has had air passenger regulations uh, for many years and they seem to kind of just do it better. Uh, So we're looking to them and it's pretty obvious when you're an air traveler, you know how you're supposed to be treated and you know how to go about uh, claiming something if it's owed to you and you haven't been treated properly. So we want Canadians to have that same kind of peace of mind when they're traveling, that they know what to expect and they know if they don't have their expectations met or aren't treated fairly, what to do about it. So really, it's just, you know, all Canadians, um, in particular for us Atlantic Canadians, knowing how, uh, how they should be treated when they're traveling. How has the Canadian Automobile Association advocated for stronger air passenger protections? Well, you know, since the very beginning, we've been at the table as the only consumer group, the only one representing the, you know, average Canadian traveler um, at the federal table. Um, So at that table, there are, you know, government entities, but there are airlines and, uh, you know, it was really important for us to be there because we were really seen as the representatives of the mobile public. The uh, the Minister of Transportation actually referred to CAA as that, and uh, we we aren't out um, to you know sell anything or to have anything to gain other than we are truly advocating on behalf of Canadians uh, on this issue. So uh, you know we take our position pretty seriously uh, as representing the average Canadian traveler, and we try to think. Um, you know, put put ourselves in their shoes, and uh, and what would we want? You know, as a traveler, uh, and and we take that to the federal table, and so it's really important that we're there, that we have a space there, um, and uh, we're making some headway. What percentage of Canadians have experienced flight disruptions recently, according to the new CAA survey? Oh boy, I've got some some cool uh, numbers for you. So one in ten say the Canadians, so like sixty one percent, say that. 
someone they know or themselves have experienced a flight disruption in the last two years. And that's from a CAA survey, survey in October. And just to give you some perspective, one in three uh, uh, driving age Canadians are CAA members. So that's really indicative of the Canadian population um, in many respects. Um, uh, we also have seen that over 80% of Canadians want to see more transparency um, with some statistics published by the federal government and the airlines. And uh this is a stat from Statistics Canada, not from CAA, but 78.3 million air trips were taken in the quarter, second quarter of 2023, which is 7.7 million more than the second quarter of 2022. So that is a significant increase. And that's in line with what we've been saying for some time is that travel is 100% back. We are seeing Canadians travel at the rate that they were pre-pandemic. Um, it might be a little bit different, but it's definitely back. So like you say, with travel back in business, where can travelers find the CAA's Air Passenger Help Guide online? Well, it's, uh, it's pretty easy to find. So caa.ca. And you'll see a button that says your rights right at the top. It's really obvious. And the air passenger help guide is right there. Um, so you can go there and it'll walk you through five clicks or less. If you have a common issue, uh, to, uh, like a cancellation, a disruption, um, a delay, uh, a tarmac delay, lost baggage, those kind of things, it will tell you exactly how you go about getting what you're owed if you're owed anything. And if not, it'll direct you to uh, other courses of action um, should you need that. Good Sunday morning and welcome back to the best of your VOCM mornings. I'm Ben Murphy. And I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. Well, tributes were pouring in from leaders of all political stripes following the news of former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney's passing this past week at the age of 84 years. Mulroney led the country with the largest majority mandate in Canadian history after his 1984 election victory and served as the PM until he stepped down in 1993. Well, we welcomed Premier Andrew Fury on the program this week to talk about the life and legacy of former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. What was your reaction to hearing of the passing of Brian Mulroney? Well, of course, like uh, most Canadians, I think uh, first and foremost, my thoughts go to his family. Uh, because while uh, the prime minister, the former prime minister served and put his name on the ballot, is the family who has always supported him and always ran to, behind him. So our thoughts are with uh, with them uh, and their loss and their grief, uh, first and foremost. And believe it or not, uh, dear Lynn, I've had the opportunity to have many discussions with former prime minister over the last uh, four years since becoming premier. He reached out uh, early on in my tenure uh, and provided uh, some advice on the state of the nation and, and Newfoundland's position in it. Uh, and just recently, I reached out to him and had a conversation about the current state of politics, uh, the extremism that seems to be too frequently uh, defining uh, the narrative and the debate and, and some of the nastiness that exists within that polarizing uh, choice that is uh, is often only presented to Canadians. And it, so while it is a, it is a huge loss uh, for the country, it's a loss of a source of counsel and advice for me as well. And uh, but above all of that and beyond all of that, it is his true loss uh, to his family, his wife, his children, his grandchildren. Yeah, it's remarkable to me to see liberals coming forward to speak so highly of um, a very well-known Tory in this country. What advice did he give you, Premier? 
Well, starting off, of course, um, when you're brand new in the chair, um, uh, the relationship with Ottawa for any premier, uh, by the way, that it's not unique to Newfoundland and Labrador, is is paramount. Uh, how you interact with the federation, um, how you help define the federation, uh, because it is not a unilateral uh, uh, relationship. Uh, it, despite the appearance, often it is not a top-down relationship. The federation was created. Uh, as a council, uh, recognizing the importance of the participation uh, of uh, premiers and provinces. And we had a, uh, a, a ideologic conversation around that and, and the positioning of Newfoundland and Labrador and helping define uh, the current uh, Canadian context and setting the landscape for the future Canadian context and how to appropriately set the relationship with the Prime Minister, uh, with the Federal Cabinet, in order to uh, help advance uh, Canadian priorities, but also make sure that Newfoundland and Labrador's voice was heard uh, at the at the federal table, and uh, that our benefits uh, were re- benefits were returned from that relationship to the to the people of the province. And and in the more recent conversations, uh, believe it or not. <laughs> Leaders often struggle with the um, with the current political uh, landscape, and as I said, it's it's often uh, it's, we're often left with this false forced choice of two extremes, and and for some reason in in the fall of this year that was really bothering me the the way that the, the positioning of uh, of the extremes and and the nastiness that that existed sometimes on both character assassinations. And, and so I reached out to the former prime minister and, and, uh, and uh, to get to seek his views on the current uh, political landscape, uh, the current uh, thought process of the Canadian public. And we were, we were fully aligned that uh, while the extremes are occupying the media cycle and forcing the debate, uh, most Canadians are in the center. Most Canadians are pragmatic, responsible, and reasonable people who uh, who want to see the country proceed with a socially progressive agenda while being fiscally responsible. Um, and he was uh, equally perturbed, perhaps more perturbed, he was quite animated actually on on the call uh, about the, the the nastiness that has creeped in uh, to uh, public life and public service uh, and the character assassinations that exist uh, at the periphery, largely driven by social media. It was it was a very um, it was a very um, personally rewarding uh, conversation for me and and sometimes all you need is that gut check with someone who's been there before but is also seeing it from the outside now and um, to know that your beliefs and your views um, uh, are appropriately placed. And that is Newfoundland and Labrador Premier Andrew Fury. He joined us on your VOCM Mornings on Friday to talk about the life and legacy of Brian Mulroney. Well, Ben, would you look at the time? Just like that, our time is just about up here on the best of your VOCM Mornings. Thanks for tuning into the show and starting your morning with us. We will be back bright and early tomorrow morning, 5.30 to 9 a.m. with all the weekend news you need to know. We'll have everything up to date, updated forecasts. Uh, It was a weird week of weather, too, so looking forward to what's to come. I'm Ben Murphy. And I'm Jerry Lynn Mackey. Have a safe and happy Sunday. I'm easy like Sunday morning.